Hey, Five Oaks family and friends. Uh, great to see you again this weekend. Thank you for joining us uh, for worship. Before we jump into today's sermon and today's passage, I want to tell you about what we're starting next week. I'm very excited about it. We're starting a brand new series on prayer. It's going to be a series on the Lord's Prayer, and we're calling it Prayer Training for the Rest of Us. We're doing this series because we all struggle with prayer. On the one hand, prayer is super easy. On the other hand, to experience a rich prayer life and a consistent prayer life, it's really hard. And it's not hard for you because you don't have the right personality for prayer or because you have trouble concentrating or because you're not spiritual enough. You struggle because you're not adequately trained. So this series is about prayer training for the rest of us. Prayer is one of the richest experiences we can have in our lives. It can be one of the most impacting experiences we can have on our lives, and not just on our own lives, but on our world. So don't you think it's about time that we stop missing out on that? Don't you think it's about time that you stop missing out on that? So that starts next week, and I hope you'll join us. Today, we are completing our series on the book of Habakkuk. Yet I will rejoice, finding strength in a crisis. We've been looking at Habakkuk because Habakkuk is a book for times like these. And today we're going to pull it together in chapter 3, looking at verses 1 through 19. So I want to encourage you to get your Bible out if you don't have it already, print out your sermon application guide, and then uh, we're going to watch the Bible Project video, which is an overview of Habakkuk, uh, a book that I hope you'll come back to throughout the rest of your life. The book of the prophet Habakkuk. He lived during the final decades of Israel's southern kingdom, and it was a time of injustice and idolatry. He saw the rising threat of Babylon on the horizon, and that was not good news for anybody. But unlike the other prophets, Habakkuk does not accuse Israel. He doesn't even speak on God's behalf to the people. Rather, all of his words are addressed personally to God. And the book tells about Habakkuk's personal struggle, his journey of trying to believe that God is good when there is so much evil and tragedy in the world. And so Habakkuk's words are actually poems of lament, and they're very similar to the laments that you find in the book of Psalms. The poet lodges a complaint and then draws God's attention to suffering or injustice in the world, demanding that God do something. And knowing about this lament form, it's actually the key to understanding the design and message of this short book. Chapters 1 and 2 are framed as a back-and-forth argument between Habakkuk and God. And the prophet lodges two complaints to which God offers two responses. His first complaint is that life in Israel has become horrible. The Torah is neglected, resulting in violence and injustice, and it's all being tolerated by Israel's corrupt leaders. And Habakkuk, he's crying out, asking God to do something, but nothing seems to change. But then all of a sudden, God responds. He says that he's very aware of the corruption of his own people, Israel, and that he's summoning the armies of Babylon to bring down his justice on Israel. And very similar to the message of Micah or Isaiah, God says he will use this terrifying empire to devour Israel because of their injustice and evil. 
But Habakkuk has a problem with this answer, and so he offers his second complaint. He says Babylon is even worse than Israel. They're more corrupt. They're more violent. They've deified their own military power. They treat humans like animals, gathering them up like fish in a net, he says. They devour nations and people groups in order to build their own empire. And so Habakkuk says, how can you, a holy, good God, use such corrupt nations as your instruments in history? He demands an explanation. In fact, he depicts himself as a watchman on the city walls waiting for God's response, which eventually comes. God tells Habakkuk to get out some tablets and chisel and write down what he sees and hears. It's a vision about an appointed time in the future, that even though it may seem slow in coming, it will eventually come. In fact, God says that the righteous person will live by their faith in this hope and vision. So what is this divine promise that Habakkuk is supposed to write down? It's that God will bring Babylon down. God says that the violence and oppression of the nations creates this never-ending cycle of revenge and that God will use this cycle to bring about the rise and fall of nations. And the fact that God might for a time use a corrupt nation like Babylon does not mean that he endorses everything that they do. He holds all nations accountable to his justice. And so Babylon will fall along with any other nation that acts like them. God's promise is then elaborated by a series of five woes that describe the kinds of oppression and injustice that's perpetrated by nations like Babylon. The first two target unjust economic practices, like how wealthy people will charge ridiculous interest just to keep poor people in debt. And so they build their wealth through crooked means. The third woe is a critique of slave labor, treating humans like animals and threatening them with violence if they don't produce. The fourth woe targets the abuse of alcohol by irresponsible leaders. While people are suffering under their bad leadership, they're partying and wasting their money on sex and booze. And the last woe exposes the idolatry, the engine that drives such nations. They have made money and power and national security into their gods, offering these allegiance at all costs. And so people become slaves to their own national empire. Now, the practices described here aren't unique to Babylon, but that's part of the point. Given the human condition, most nations eventually become Babylon. And so this is how God's answer to Habakkuk in this book becomes God's answer to all later generations, to anyone who lives in a world ruled by other Babylons. But it leaves the question hanging. Is God going to let this cycle, the rise and fall of Babylon-like empires go on forever? And that question is what chapter 3 is about. We're told that this is a prayer of Habakkuk, and it begins by Habakkuk pleading with God to act now in the present like he has in the past in bringing down corrupt nations. And what follows is a very ancient poem. It first describes a powerful, terrifying appearance of God. It's very similar to the opening poems of Micah and Nahum and similar to the appearance of God at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. There's cloud and fire and earthquake. When the Creator shows up to confront human evil, everybody will be paying attention. Habakkuk then goes on to describe this future defeat of evil as a future exodus. So just like God came as a warrior and he split the sea in his battle against Pharaoh, Habakkuk says that God will once more bring his judgment down on the head of the evil house. So Pharaoh, like Babylon, has become here an archetype of violent human nations. But at the same time, we're told that when God confronts evil, he will save his people and his anointed one. It's a reference to the king from the line of David. 
And so in this poem, the Exodus story of the past has become an image of the future Exodus God will perform. He will once again defeat evil and bring down the pharaohs and the Babylons of this world. He'll bring justice to all people and rescue the oppressed and the innocent. And it's this hope that enables Habakkuk to conclude the book with hopeful praise. Even if the world's falling apart with food shortage or drought or war or whatever, he will choose trust and joy in the covenant promises of God. And so Habakkuk, by the end of this book, becomes a shining example of how the righteous live by faith. Habakkuk recognizes just how dark and chaotic the world and our lives can become. And he invites us into a journey of faith, of trusting that God loves this world more than we do and that he will one day deal with its evil. And that's what the book of Habakkuk is all about. I want to invite you to read the underlined portions or to pray the underlined portions uh, as, we, as we pray this prayer. This is based on Isaiah 46. Heavenly Father, you are God alone. There is no one like you. Your promises stand firm. What you have planned and purposed will come to be. As we look to your word, teach us and guide us by your spirit. Encourage us and remind us that you are faithful and sovereign. We can be confident that as we follow you, you will protect us and provide us with all that we need. Thank you that whatever our circumstances may be, we can trust in your word and hope in your promises. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's sermon is about how to regain our footing in a crisis. Uh, the passage is going to be read in just a few moments here by several of our Five Oaks staff. And to understand what Habakkuk is talking about, you need to understand that most of the places he's mentioning and most of the instances he's mentioning, incidences he's mentioning, and uh, the, whole, the whole prayer that he is writing here revolves mostly around the exodus from slavery in Egypt. So knowing that, there might be details you don't quite understand, parts of the story you don't remember, but listen carefully as our staff reads uh, Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk 3, 1 through 19, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed, but he marches on forever. I saw the tents of Cushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, Lord? 
Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lighting of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come to the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. I had to get outside again for the sermon this week because of one of the strong images that's in our passage today. Uh, I know this isn't for everybody. Uh, most people have said they really enjoy the being in the outdoors uh, part of this, but uh, I know at least one person who said it's distracting and I'm guessing that person represents more than one person. Uh, so uh, sorry about that. But like I said, the image that's in today's passage is really just so powerful. And so uh, this, this week I've got a, a selfie stick so I don't have to be right in your face uh, in the camera. I hope that helps uh, a little bit. I'm standing in Lost Creek, uh, which is uh, about 10 miles, 10 minutes outside of Ellsworth, Wisconsin. It's one of the tributaries that I think, pretty sure it goes right into the Rush River, somewhere down the line here, not very far from here. And it is absolutely one of my favorite places to fish. And I think some of the reasons why I love this creek um, are because it's, it's smaller, it's a little narrower. Uh, when, the, when the leaves are popping out, I mean, it is beautiful. It's, it's lush, it's like a Garden of Eden uh, type of experience out here. It is so, so beautiful. And uh, I, I love that it is, uh, it's, it's kind of shallow. And, and that really relates to part of the reason that I'm out here, what I'm gonna be, what I'm gonna be talking about because being shallow I can I can see I can see where I'm walking uh, I don't particularly like this place because I catch a lot of fish here the reality is I'm not a very good fly fisherman not at all uh, and fly fishing is not for me about catching fish although I love it when I catch fish uh, for me it is really about solitude it's about quiet it's about recharging one of the biggest challenges when fishing streams and rivers like this is just plain walking, especially the older you get. Like I said, it's one of the reasons I like this stream is that it's shallow enough that I can see the rocks that are underneath and the boulders and I can navigate them uh, a lot better as I'm, as I'm walking along. Now, the fish 
are usually facing up against the current. They're facing against the current trying to, you know, to watch the food that's coming by. And so most of the time when I fish from here, I'm fishing from the center of the stream. And part of the reason is it's uh, because it's so shallow, the fish can see you really easily and get, get spooked. But the other thing is it makes more room for casting uh, through this you know, pretty narrow passageway. And uh, so one of the things I've discovered is that I can walk easier through the rocks if I walk like a gorilla. I think that's about the best way that I can explain it. It's kind of like when you walk on ice and you walk like a penguin and you can, you can walk a lot better. Well, walking through here, I think I do a little better when I walk like a gorilla. So when I say walk like a gorilla, this is what I mean. I kind of just walking like this with my legs bent when things are really rocky and I can't see the bottom very well. That's how I walk. Now, I don't do that normally because uh, it actually looks, I, I doubt anybody, if anybody were here watching me, while I was doing that. I doubt that they would be thinking in their mind, oh, that's ingenious. Uh, that's a great way to walk on the rocks. What they'd be saying or thinking is there's a maniac there. I don't think we'll, we'll fish this stretch today, <laughs> which actually may be a good idea. Might be a way to keep this place all to myself. The book of Habakkuk ends with a declaration. It's that declaration at the very end, the very last verse that made me want to come out here and talk about walking among rocks and talk about how to get and regain our sure footing. If you look at Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 19, it says, The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. His strength is described by this incredible image of the Lord, the sovereign Lord, giving him feet like a deer that treads on heights. There's a lot to this imagery that Habakkuk is using here. And it's, it's uh, a, a big part of it has to do with, with the heights and what it's saying about being able to scale the heights. But another major part of it is the ability to scale the heights because of the sure-footedness of the deer. And so in one of the commentaries, uh, one of the major commentaries in the book of Habakkuk, here's what the commentators say. Sure-footed, untiring, bounding with energy, the Lord's people may expect to ascend the heights of victory despite their many severe setbacks. The heights of the earth, the places of conquest and domain shall be the ultimate possession of God's people. Now the idea of sure-footedness is certainly part of what he's driving at here because of what he says just a few verses earlier. So if you look at verse 16, it says, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Habakkuk is saying he is staggered by what is about to happen. He's crying. His legs are about to give way from under him. So how did he regain his footing? The text is really clear. He, he regained it because the sovereign Lord gave him strength, the sovereign Lord gave him those feet. But here's, here's a question that you need to ask. When he was staggering, when he could barely stand, when he was weeping, when his strength was basically uh, completely gone, the Lord was still sovereign then. So how is it that Habakkuk took hold of God? How is it that he took hold of the sovereign Lord 
so that he would have strength? I mean, this is, this is the big question that we have, to, we have to answer. This is what I want you to leave here with, is with an understanding of how it is that we can take hold of God when we are staggering. Um, I can imagine a day not too far in the distant future when it's going to be very difficult for me to come to a stream like this and go fishing. In a time like that, I'm going to, I may get a hankering to go and I may ask my son, Henry Michael, to take me and I can imagine grabbing hold of his arm, telling, you know, pointing to a spot and saying, just take me to that spot right there and then come get me in about a half an hour. Uh, it might not be Henry Michael. Uh, he's the fly fisherman, uh, the other fly fisherman in the family. It might be one of my grandchildren, one of my granddaughters or one of my grandsons who have learned to fly fish and who love it, who might bring me out here. But I can imagine even, even now, even at this age, how much easier it would be to navigate these rocks and walk through these streams, especially the ones that are deeper, if I had somebody to hold on to, somebody who was really, really sure-footed, somebody a lot younger and uh, maybe more experienced than walking on the rocks. Uh, it would make all the difference in the world. Well, so how is it that we can take hold of the Lord, the sovereign Lord, so that we can get that strength, so we can become sure-footed? The answer is really in this chapter. It's the entirety of the chapter. So the first key to taking hold of God and regaining your footing is in actually the content of most of the chapter. So look at verse two. The Lord, our Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat, repeat them in our day. In your time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. What follows is a poetic recitation of the exodus from slavery in Egypt with some scenes thrown in from taking the promised land. So really the first key to regaining our footing in a time of crisis when we're, when we're stumbling, when things are really difficult, uh, the first key is remembering. It's simply remembering. Now it's good in many ways to remember to look throughout your life and and remember the times that god has answered prayer in your life the things the mighty deeds that you've seen uh, from god in your life but i think there's a better remembering actually a more important remembering a primary remembering as you look through the scripture when the biblical authors in both the old testament and new testament when they're thinking about and remembering and calling back memories of God's mighty works, they rarely look back on their own life. The problem with looking back on your own life is what are you looking at? You're usually looking at the answers to prayer where God said yes to one of your prayers. You're missing all the ones where he said no. And because of his no, it was the best thing. It was the best thing for you. It was the best thing for his plan, which is always the best thing for us. But the biblical writers are always looking back to the, to the mighty deeds of God that were done on behalf of God's people and on behalf of God's mission. And so throughout the Old Testament, what is always looked back to over and over again in the Psalms and in the prayers, what is always looked back to is the Exodus. It's the primary pivotal, pivotal event in the life of Israel. And so there's always this recalling the Exodus. And then, and that's what this chapter is about. It's a recalling of the Exodus in poetic terminology. But in the New Testament, 
it's recalling the gospel. It's recalling, well, more than the gospel, it's recall, or, or a, a particular aspect of the gospel, it's recalling the cross and the resurrection in light of the gospel story, which is the whole story of scripture. In fact, in the telling of the cross and in the telling of the resurrection in the New Testament, it is oftentimes cast in terms of the Exodus. Exodus terminology, Exodus imagery, the people of Israel who are the ones who have become disciples, who are following Jesus, are looking at Jesus through the eyes of the Exodus. And they're remembering how it is that God brings rescue and redemption and all the things that Jesus brought through the cross and the resurrection. So the first key to regaining our footing uh, in times of crisis, uh, one, one of the keys, or the first key is remembering. It's remembering the great works of God uh, throughout the story of God. The second key is repeating. And so one of the things that you notice as this whole uh, chapter starts and as it ends is that it is, and even the way that if you look at the scripture, the way that it's laid out, this is a poem. Uh, it's specifically a psalm and it's, it's a song. And so Habakkuk has written this in a way that it will be repeated over and over again in the life of Jesus. So Lois and I just started watching a couple of weeks ago, The Chosen, it's a TV miniseries on the life of Jesus. And the whole idea is that they're gonna have several seasons of this if they can raise enough money to go beyond the first season. And I have to say, after the first show, I thought it was pretty good and I thought it was gonna be interesting, but I wasn't compelled to come back. When we started watching the second show, about halfway through it, I found myself totally hooked and there's no looking back. I absolutely love this retelling of the life of Jesus. It's a creative way that they're doing it. So, um, and by the way, you can watch it on YouTube if you didn't know that, or you can, um, there's some other ways of watching it as well. But anyways, uh, as you watch this show, there are various times that you see Jesus by himself and you see him and you barely hear him praying. And you know, his lips are moving and you hear some of the things that he's praying. And when he's praying, he's praying Psalms, he's praying some of the blessings that the Jewish people would pray throughout the day, bedtime, getting up in the morning, that sort of thing. And he's, uh, he's praying Psalms. And that's exactly how Jesus would have prayed because that's the way he grew up. That's how his people prayed. That's why when he gets to the cross, in the midst of all the agony, in the midst of everything that he's going through on the cross, what's coming out of his lips, what's coming to his mind are the Psalms. And so he's praying the Psalms while on the cross. Why would that be? Because of repetition, repetition throughout his life. It's one of the ways, it's one of the ways that he regained his, his footing. It's one of the ways that we can regain our footing in a crisis. How does Habakkuk take hold of God and regain his footing? Does it by remembering, by repeating, and then by resolving? Look at verse 18. He's just written those haunting words about total collapse, no food, no harvest, no sheep in the pens total economic collapse. Then he says in verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. He resolves to worship. Do you see it? He's not saying everything was falling apart and God gave me a happy pill. No, he's saying everything will fall apart, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will I will be joyful in God, my Savior. I will in God. That's it. 
he resolves. He resolves to worship. It's a choice. It takes resolve. Would you repeat with me right there in your living room, wherever you are, where you're watching this, uh, will you repeat out loud those three words, these three keys to really, to regaining our footing? It begins with remember, repeat, resolve. Repeat after me. Remember, repeat, resolve. Remember, repeat, resolve. One more time. Remember, repeat, resolve. You know, if you get this down and you practice it, any one of us, if we get this down and we practice it, it can, it can make such a difference in those times when we're in a crisis and we, have, we really, really need to regain our footing. Now, if you're watching this together as a family, I wanna encourage you to pause the video and just spend a few moments as a family reviewing what those three words connect to. What are we remembering? What does it mean to repeat it? What does it mean as a family to repeat it? And then what are we resolving to do? As we begin our response with communion, I wanna invite you to take the bread and to remember that Jesus' body was broken for you. Take it and eat it. Now I also invite you to take the cup, remembering that his blood was shed for you. Let's drink it. Jesus experienced utter devastation for you. He staggered for you. He wept for you. He lost his footing. He stumbled with the cross on his back. He was lifted up by others and nailed to a cross. He did that so that we could regain our footing. Take hold of him. Remember the gospel story. Repeatedly sing and tell and read the story. Resolve to worship. Right now, if you have kids with you who are not taking communion, I want to encourage you to pray the blessing that's going to be on the screen over them, and then we will continue our response.